Hello and welcome to The Leap of Faith, the haunting theme from the film A Hidden Life in cinemas from tonight, which tells the story of an Austrian farmer, Franz Jägerstetter, who refused to take an oath of loyalty to Hitler or fight in the Nazi army during World War II and would pay the ultimate price. Dr. Patrick Houlihan, Assistant Professor of 20th Century European History from Trinity College Dublin, will be here to review the film and explore its wider context. Now, my first guest this evening joins me from the BBC Studios in London. A presenter with BBC Five Live, he previously co-hosted The One Show and Daybreak, and has also been one of the main presenters of football coverage on ITV Sport in recent years. But in the midst of all that high-flying, action-packed career, there was a moment which he reflects on to this day, when his friend took him along to Mass and his journey towards converting to the Roman Catholic Church began. Adrian Childs, welcome to The Leap of Faith. You're the perfect candidate for this programme, given our name, The Leap of Faith. What was happening in your life that resulted in you sitting across from a priest and considering putting yourself on the transfer list? Uh, (laughs) Well, I'm, I'm not exactly sure you'd call it a transfer list for a start, because though... For reasons my family can't explain, given they're all atheists, I was actually christened into the sort of Anglican Church in Birmingham in 1967 as a uh, as a newborn. So I was, if I was anything, I was that. But so it wasn't so much a conversion, although I call it that. And so as you say, I'm a con- convert, but it was more. An adoption. I was. Mm. I was being. I was being. I was being interviewed by uh, Claire Balding once, and she said, "You kind of adopted the Catholic faith." And I said, "Well, that, that's kind of more accurate." But look, I'm kind of splitting hairs. Why did I want to be a Catholic? Well, I mean, there was a number of. There was, you know, it's it's a short question, and it's and it's it's a short question, and you know, there are various lengths of answer I can give. I mean, I'd always been a believer. My family were almost entirely atheists, apart from my Croatian grandmother, who used to take me to church when. I was four or five in in Croatia, but then there was little bits over the years. Just little things happened that made me sort of, oh, that's interesting. You know, I sort of hanker after it a bit. I, mean, I don't know how far you want me to go back mm. here, but I'll you know I'll answer any questions uh, you, you you sort of have specifically. Well, it is specific to the idea that when you you know you talk to a convert versus somebody who's born into something, they've they've made a sometimes an adult decision or, or a conscious decision towards something. Do you remember what that was and who the influence in that was? Well, regarding being a, a, you know, a not being a cradle Catholic, I, I often feel sorry for, often feel sorry for people who are because while those outside the Catholic faith think, you know, Catholics are absolute masters of indoctrinated and brainwashing their young. In fact, I mean, I don't know whether it's, it's what, Catholics set out to do, but they're extremely poor at it, I'd say, because as many people who you sort of have for life, it seems to me you also put off for life by dragging them off to church at a at a very young age. I mean, Father Ben, who I've written about recently, who was a, uh, an Augustinian um, and was an Austin friar, I remember him saying to me, you know, I wouldn't take kids to church. I mean, they're fine to come. But, you know, they're not really listening to me. They're sitting, if they're being quiet, it's because they found a colouring book or a video game or, or whatever. He just said, you know, that, you know, he said, you're never going to find God through the church. You might find the church through God. And that sort of, sort of stuck in my mind a bit. And as he said, that's kind of what happened to me because 
you know, I never really went to church since it was really high in my mind in my late 30s to actually become a Catholic. Churches I'd been to before that were just kind of, you know, I just kind of a bit bored. They didn't sort of speak to me. But, you know, as soon as I went into a Catholic church for the first time, uh, with a with a friend of mine who was a cradle Catholic from Birmingham. The church was in West London. As soon as I went in, I sort of, I just sort of felt at home there, you know. I, and you know, it, I, I couldn't really explain what it's about. I mean, I've said sort of mainly in jest, you know. It was because I looked around and I saw people a bit like me, which i.e. you know, blokes I'd like to go out drinking with and women I quite fancied. But I didn't <laughs> put it. I, I didn't put it like that to the priest. Obviously, <laughs> I felt as if I was with. I felt as if I was with my, you know, sort of with people a bit like me. It's for it's for our audience to understand sometimes the difference because, you know, as to how the Catholic Church might be perceived in the United Kingdom versus how it's perceived here. Uh, and I'm thinking about, you know, the, the idea that if there have been many people who've gone from the Anglican faith to the Roman Catholic faith because they didn't like the more liberal attitude that might be being taken by the Anglicans. Was, was that a factor for you? Women priests, for absolutely, example? Absolutely or, not. Yeah. No, absolutely, absolutely not. No, not at all. I think, for me, the difference is, is that when I travel to a certain extent to Ireland, but I go to France and Italy, or even sort of South America, where it is the, you know, kind of official or quasi-official um, religion of the state... It kind of loses something for me a bit. There was always something a bit different about the British Catholic experience. It seemed to me you were not an exclusive little club, but it was kind of, it was just kind of a bit edgy, a little bit rebellious, a, a little bit different. And I wonder whether, you know, th th there's some something about that that appealed to me. Now, it's interesting. There's a, the, the first school trip I ever went on. I don't forget, I didn't go to a Catholic school. I just went to a, a state, through the state system, a place called Hagley, just west of Birmingham. And the first school trip we ever went on, which was like 1971, um, I remember, it was to a local place called Harvington Hall, which is next to a, a Catholic church in the countryside in Worcestershire, only about five or six miles away from the school. And there's six priest holes Mm. in this in this hall and you know I speak to Frank Skinner about it who is a cradle Catholic who was born in you know born in Birmingham right in the middle of Birmingham I was talking to him about this he said look there's not a Catholic kid in, in anywhere in the West Midlands who didn't go to Harvington Hall you know it was the first place they took you if you went to a, you know, a Catholic primary school but I didn't go to a Catholic school it was just even the Church of England school it was just the, the state primary school but I just remember whether I wonder whether I don't know whether it, you know, I've, I've asked myself the question, where does it come from? Mm. You know, and I thought, well, that might have planted some kind of seeds that, you know, that Catholics were pursued. They'd done nothing wrong, but they had to go into hiding in these fabulous little hidey holes that, are, are, you know, that us little children could get into. I wonder if it was that, that just being in that place that stirred something. Um, but there were, you know, other little things that sort of happened to me along the way. Tell us more about Father Ben O'Rourke, because th th that seems to be the influence that, that, that swung it for you. Well, I think, I, I don't, yes, he swung it. Although the, the idea had been in my head before, and I was sort of drawn to it. I was drawn to it, you know, before that. But 
then I sort of lent into it and I went to see the priest and a lovely nun, Sister Jennifer, and I bought myself a book called Catholicism for Dummies when I was sort of learning the sacraments and, you know, all the standing up and sitting down and, you know, the creed and the gloria and, and, and all that. And then I started to think, hang on, is this... I don't know, what am I doing here? I mean, I loved it all, but I think, like, is this... You know, my family started saying, are you mad? And then, you know, my friends were going, well, what are you up to? Um, and then my friend, John Maguire, who was the cradle Catholic from Birmingham, who I met in London, he then said, go and see Father Ben, who'd he'd been his parish priest in Birmingham at St Mary's in Harborne uh, back in the day. He'd also been Frank Skinner's parish priest, as it happens. And... By then, Father Ben was uh, an old man and he was semi-retired, but there was kind of a residential home rest place for sort of the Austin Friars in Hammersmith at the time near where I lived. So, you know, one morning I knocked on his door. I think Maguire, John Maguire took me round there and then left me with Father Ben and I just started talking to him and saying, you know, blah, 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 I'm, you read, you know, I'm looking at the sacraments and I had my big book there and... And, and, and whatnot, and, he, and then he, he just sort of kindly stopped me. He said, oh, don't worry too much about that, the sacraments. He said, he said, he said you know, 90% of, 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 of that stuff is just superstition anyway. <laughs> I went, all right, okay. And then, and then we just talked and talked, and he said, look, you know, if you, get, you have to do a bit of that to be let in, sort of, but, you know, it's just about being still. You know, it's just about... It's just about being still and just the truth will come to you. He said, just 15 minutes every day, promise me now, you'll just be still for 15 minutes. Um, are, you, me, are you good at being still? Well, no, I mean, the trouble is, you know, I mean, this was 11 years ago. I've probably managed it about five times <laughs> in all those years. I mean, I exaggerate, but only slightly. But I knew what he meant. It's incredibly difficult to do, actually. We're so engineered just to keep going. And it's slightly my, slightly my personality type, you know, to run on adrenaline. But what I do know is that you know, when I go into a church, when I go into a Catholic church, wherever I am in the world, I feel something that feels a bit like peace. So when people say to me, you know, anyone who becomes a Catholic, anyone's a Catholic full stop in, in Britain or anywhere, or particularly anybody who's a convert because they've sort of got to answer for themselves like you know you know what you do that for then you you're you you know you've got your sort of back to the wall instantly and they're saying well you know what about this what about that you know what about celibacy you know what about uh you know what about the right to life you know all these aspects of catholic doctrines so you've somehow got to justify the whole lot you know so which i say well you know, look, this is above my pay grade, you know, go and speak to a priest or the Pope or something, but you know, I'm not here to answer for it. And to me, religion is the one thing where it has to be not about, it's, it's less about what you think than it's sort of what you feel. And so I work backwards from what I feel. And when I walk into an empty church, frankly, more than mass, when I walk into an empty church, I sit there and then just everything sort of ebbs away from me. Mm. You know, and then... So I work backwards from that. It gives me that feeling. So sometimes I've thought, well, if I'm going to regular mass, sometimes you feel like, well, this is, you know, this is, this is a penance. This is so in a way, it is my, this is my sort of membership requirement, like doing a, you know, doing a certain number of hours piloting a light aircraft. Otherwise, you get your license taken off you. That's yeah. what mass can feel like. But I'm just sort of buying the time, buying that bit of peace, you know, in a church and. 
I've been very lucky down the way to meet a lot of fabulous priests. I mean, none more than Father Ben, but there's been some, you know, other remarkable sort of people along the way who've, you know, just, just you know, given me a real sort of leg up with it all. I get a sense that what you're getting from this is, is some way um, an antidote. Uh, are you a warrior? Oh, God, yeah, massive. I mean, a lot of people said I'm, I'm you know, I'm a natural you know, I'm a, I'm a natural Catholic. I just burdened, spent all my life burdened with Catholic guilt without even being Catholic. You know, I just kind of, I'd almost reversed into it. I was, all, I was, you know, I, w- I was already there with my mindset, and you know, I just found the religion that was best suited for me. So, you know, it's a, I suppose the question I always asked about people of religion is when I see people in church, I always ask, them, "What are you here for?" You know, what are you here for? You're here because you want eternal life. You know, are you here to pray for something specific? Are you here because it's just what you do? And I never know the answer, but I always wonder about people. And then I ask myself the question. And actually, all I am there for is that bit of peace. I'm not in it, you know, for eternal life because I just don't know. You know, I don't, mm. you know, might be nice, might not, but might happen, might not. It might, you know, so it, it's. You know, and I and I would never, you know, I would so if I pray, I pray for guidance. Really, just help me do the right thing here. I, I think it'd just be presumptuous to pray for something specific like my, you know, daughter's exam results or my mum's health or something. You know, so when I come down to it's just, you know, it's just about that. It's just it's just to get that, to just get that sort of sense of peace there. Adrian Charles, thank you for joining us on the Leap of Faith. Not at all. Look forward to meeting you sometime. Next this evening, a compelling new film called A Hidden Life opened this evening in the Irish Film Institute and other cinemas in Dublin and around the country. It's based on the true story of Franz Jägerstetter, an Austrian peasant farmer, played by August Diehl, who refused to take an oath of allegiance to Hitler or fight in the Nazi army during World War II, sacrificing everything, including his own life. We've invited Dr. Patrick Houlihan, assistant professor of 20th century European history at Trinity College, to review the film for us, and he joins me now. Patrick, you bring an extra layer to our conversation tonight. I'm a historian of war and ideology in 20th century Europe and global history and the author of a book on Catholicism and the Great War, Religion in Everyday Life in Germany and Austria-Hungary, 1914 to 1922. And for me, this uh, film really brought home the um, experience of a bygone peasant world and showed how much Catholic Europe had changed in the 20th century. I thought the film did an amazing job of... um, really recreating this peasant world in this uh, the rhythms and daily work of, of everyday life. So who was Franz Jägerstetter? Franz Jägerstetter was a uh, Austrian Catholic uh, peasant from Radeburg in uh, Upper Austria, um, not too far away from Braunau am, am Inn, where Adolf Hitler was born in Austria in 1889. But um, Jägerstetter... Um, would have been an obscure figure uh, to history and uh, uh, perhaps forgotten. And that's indeed the film's framing device, is uh, George Eliot in Middlemarch, A Hidden Life. 
but uh, he came to prominence because he refused to uh, enter into combat service in the Wehrmacht, in the Third Reich, and refused to uh, take the loyalty oath to Adolf Hitler that was required of all Wehrmacht soldiers. And he's given numerous opportunities to uh, recant, uh, change his beliefs, or to sign on uh, to military service in in some sort. And he ultimately didn't do it. He uh, willingly chose death, which he conceived of in in terms of uh, Christian martyrdom. And uh, he went willingly to his death uh, as he believed it was serving an evil cause to... uh, uh, fight in the forces of the Third Reich, and in some is this amazingly um, progressive, um, prescient figure who recognized what so many around him did not, the full extent of the evil of the Third Reich, and refused to uh, submit his individual will to it and went to his death because of it. Patrick, though, it is interesting that if you think of many people who end up becoming martyrs to a cause, they're very often influenced by an external source or, or there's somebody else manipulating them. Was there any evidence of that at all for Jägerstatter? Well, it's interesting. They show him in uh, conversations with uh, several people uh, in the film, the uh, local parish priest and um, the bishops who are trying to influence him to um, recant uh, his, his views and kind of acquiesce a bit. So there's certainly pressures there. But one thing I felt that the film um, did not portray uh, effectively was the religious nature of the relationship with his wife, in particular, Francisca uh, Fani. Um, I mean, the, the actors have a great on-screen kind of chemistry, and you really see, mm-hmm. you see the, the love, the essential love that's portrayed between them. But what was missed uh, to my mind, and that is, is the religiously grounded nature uh, of this and the, influ- the mutual influences on each other. The film begins in 1939, but uh, Franz and Francisca are married in 1936, and um, they went on their honeymoon to Rome, uh, of all places, and so visiting the old um, pilgrimage sites and the tombs of the martyrs and this kind of thing. Uh, and it was Francisca who really brought Franz uh, along in in, uh, in many ways in his religious convictions. I would have liked to have seen more of that portrayed uh, in the early parts of the film. Well, let's hear a moment from the film. This is where he goes to his local priest uh, to, to discuss this further. It's interesting to know as well that Gerstetter uh, was a member of the Third Order. He was the sacristan in the local church. So he, he, he would have had a relationship with his priest where he believed he could have, have, have gone for some advice. Father, they call me up a cancer. We're killing innocent people. Raiding other countries, preying on the weak. Now the priests call them heroes, even saints, the soldiers, the doers. It might be that the other ones are the heroes. Huh? The ones who defend their homes against the invaders. Have you spoken with anyone else? Your wife? No. Family? Don't you think you ought to consider the consequences of your actions for them? You they almost surely be shot. Yes. <laughs> Your sacrifice would benefit no one. I, this really speaks to, to my mind about the, the social role of, of individual belief and responsibility. Um, in some ways, it's a very... Uh, a strange um, heroism that we're unaccustomed to, I think, in this modern world. 
mean, so many of the great tales, even from the times of Homer's Odyssey, are about a man trying to get back home to his loved ones and the family. Right? These are stories that resonate with us. And this is a man choosing uh, death uh, away from his family, exclusion from his family, and um, not for any kind of personal gain, uh, riches or power or anything like that, uh, but for a, a belief in what he thinks is the right thing to do. But the way that he and, and later his widow were treated by their village, by indeed the country, I think Austria denied her a widow's pension, for example, and there was a long time uh, before the people in her village would even talk to her. They referred to her, her husband as being a, a religious fool. Right, and to reduce it um, solely to religion, I, re- I think, um, diminishes the universality of what this is about. It's one of my uh, criticisms of the film, too, that in some sense we just get this uh, very time-limited snapshot that begins in 1939 and ends with his execution basically in 1943. But from that, we really, we get this beautifully encapsulated everyday life shot of the village, but we don't see how uh, the transition to Nazism from 1934 into 1938 and then the kind of fallout uh, of that as uh, people soured on the Nazi regime eventually uh, into the post-war period, but also how, indeed, how the villagers uh, uh, treated uh, Jägerstetter and, and uh, well, his family in the aftermath of the war. That's uh, really totally left out and something I, I missed from the film. I really would have liked to have seen Malik's perspectives on that, uh, the everyday life, on how, uh, how the village uh, adjusted to the, through the period of this uh, horrible ideology of the Third Reich. It's also a love story. Yeah. And you, we see the relationship between, you know, Franz and, and his wife, Franny, that um, one wonders at what stage he has to make th- the choice. It's, it's not really evident in the film, I think, at the moment where he has total conviction. That's right. And I think it's largely... Um internalized, uh, it's left to the, the, the viewer to see it as a kind of universal resistance to evil. And I can see, I think, why that directorial choice was made. I think it widens widens the uh, existential appeal of the situation, but it also um, misunderstands in some ways um, what was motivating Jägerstetter in particular, which was his uh, religious belief, his individual convictions. And we don't really hear that so much in in the movie, which is surprising to me because it's a hard thing to capture one's individual subjectivity. But to the extent that one can, uh, as a historian, to look at, examine the traces, the letters, the notebooks that were uh, left behind. Indeed, the movie is based on an exchange of uh, letters and writings that... um, uh, were collected uh, after after his death. It was uh, definitely a very religious thinker, and in some ways that that comes out from the correspondence with his his wife as well. Uh, I wish that had been uh, treated a, a, a more prominently in in the film. Greetings in God, who will make everything right again. Greetings from your three little women. They say to tell you only about the good things they're doing, of course. But I wouldn't surprise you by telling you about their disobedience. I have to scold the girls. They're always demanding my attention. 
Jose is always asking about you. When we're going to bed, she says, leave the door unlocked so Papa can come in. So uh, due to the influence of uh, an American sociologist and conscientious objector, uh, Gordon Zahn, who did research into um, Jägerstetter's life, he published a book, uh, In Solitary Witness. Um, the case became known um, more broadly and indeed was discussed at the Second Vatican Council in uh, 1962 to 1965 and helped inform some of the Catholic Church's uh, rethinking of the notion of just war, conscientious objection. And this became a conversation in this church. And so previously, uh, what would have been a, a forgotten figure really became a, a, a counter voice uh, within the church and indeed helped alter the church's tradition in some ways. And indeed, because of uh, all of this, Franz was uh, beatified by the Catholic Church in Austria in 2007, and his wife, uh, Franziska, was present at the beatification. She died in 2013, uh, living to the age of 100. For non-historians as well, when people look back at the role of the Catholic Church in World War II, there is a sense of confusion. For example, there is a, uh, an observation made by the fact that the beatification for Jägerstetter was done by Pope Benedict uh, on a visit to Austria, who did take the oath that uh, Jägerstetter didn't take, but apparently came from a, an anti-Nazi family. That's right, and it uh, reinforces just the extent to which uh, so many uh, of that generation um, would not protest the regime to to um, uh, even if they found themselves in a kind of mental opposition to it, they would not uh, publicly um, become disobedient to the regime. Um, and it's uh, of course a deep theme in German history, you know, trying to hide the the extent of of one's you know personal culpability in the, in the Nazi regime. I think this film provokes us to think in this modern world of of settled social orders where we're all too often very comfortable um, and uh, maybe too comfortable that there are some times when we need to choose unpopularity to do uh, those things, uh, even at tremendous personal cost, but to do the right thing, uh, even when it costs us popularity. I think that that's an essential theme for, for today. Dr. Batchkulin, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thanks very much, Michael. It's been a pleasure. And if you'd like to see the film, A Hidden Life, it's on release in cinemas right now in Dublin, Kilkenny and Limerick. We'll be back with you next week at the same time when we'll be exploring the level of religious literacy in the media. Join us then. From our producer Sheila O'Callaghan, broadcast coordinator Charlotte Holland and me, Michael Cummins. Good night. <laughs>